would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, John chapter 2, as we continue our study, this book. You're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you. I believe the page number is printed for you in the bulletin. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first 12 verses. Today, we're going to begin in verse 13 and go down through verse 22. John 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see Jesus today. Open our eyes, open our hearts that we might understand what you want us to understand, that we would see our Savior, that we would see our Redeemer. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith as a result and that you would grow our love and our obedience to you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, many of you are familiar with the beloved and delightful C.S. Lewis story, The Chronicles of Narnia. And if you're familiar with the story, then you know that the main character, the the hero, the Christ-like figure of the story is Aslan. And Aslan is a lion. There's an interesting scene that takes place at the end of the book Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Edmund and Lucy had just landed on dry land and they began to look around where they had landed and they see green, lush grass and they see a sky that is beautiful blue that almost seems like it comes down and touches the grass. And as they look around at the scenery, they they notice that off the distance there's this white spot in the grass, but they can't make out exactly what it is. So they begin to travel toward it through the grass and eventually the white spot came into better view and they could tell what it was. It was a lamb, a pure white lamb, a lamb that was cooking a fish breakfast. And the lamb told Edmund and Lucy to come and to sit down and then he fed them a most delicious breakfast. And then an interesting conversation took place. Lucy started to ask the lamb how to get to the land of Aslan. 
And the lamb said that he would show them how to get to his land. And then something amazing happened. Lewis put it this way. The lamb's snowy white flushed into tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself towering above them and scattering light from his mane. The lamb was the lion. Two weeks ago, we were looking at the beginning of John chapter 2 and we saw Jesus at a wedding feast, at a wedding reception of sorts in a little town called Cana. And the picture that we get of Jesus in that story is Jesus as a lamb. Gentle, kind, and lowly, providing the very best wine for the newlywed couple to serve at the feast so that the party could continue. Today, as we look at the last part of John, chapter 2, we don't see Jesus as a gentle and lowly lamb. We see him as a roaring, ferocious lion. The Bible tells us that Jesus is both the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of His people and the Lion from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is gentle and lowly. We saw Him even reference Himself that way in our call to worship from Matthew 11 earlier in the service. But the Bible also tells us that when needed, Jesus could display a holy, righteous anger that would overwhelm everyone in the area. That's what we see today in today's passage. The question is, why? What happened to make Jesus so angry? So let's look and let's see what the text shows us. Four things. First, what Jesus found when he got to the temple. Secondly, what he did after he saw what he saw. Thirdly, why he responded that way. And then fourthly, which if you're looking at your bulletin outline, got dropped off the end of the outline this week. But fourthly, what happened when the temple authorities confronted Jesus for what he did? So first of all, what Jesus found. We saw in verse 12 that when Jesus got done with the wedding feast, he went, uh, that was in Cana, he went uh, to Capernaum. And he stayed there with his disciples and some family for a few days. And then we see in verse 13 that it was time for the Passover feast to be celebrated. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And the roads going up to Jerusalem during the Passover feast would have been packed with people going to celebrate. It was a big event in the life of Israel. As they got closer and closer to Jerusalem, it would have been crowded with people and families and animals especially as they got into the city and especially as they came to the entrance of the temple. And Jesus finally arrived at the entrance to the temple. And what did he find? Well, what do we see in verses 13 and 14? The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. What did he find? As he entered, as he entered into the first part of the temple, which was called the court of the Gentiles, it was filled with merchants who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And there were money changers there with their tables and coins available to be exchanged. Now, 
what is all of this? What is going on with all of this? Well, in essence, what is happening is that the temple authorities are providing a service to the pilgrims that were coming to celebrate the Passover. Everyone coming to the temple needed to bring animals in order to sacrifice them in the temple. And it would be very difficult and very cumbersome to travel long distances with all the animals that you would need to sacrifice. And even if you went through that difficulty, you could get to the temple with the animals that you brought and the priest could tell you that animal isn't sufficient. It's not approved. It's not perfect and without blemish. And then you would be in trouble without an animal. So the temple authorities had a group of merchants available with priest-approved animals that you could buy on site and use for the sacrifices. And in addition to that, each person had to pay a temple tax in order to be able to come into the temple and to offer sacrifice and to worship. The tax was one half shekel, and it was required in the only kind of money that the temple would receive, Tyrian currency. So again, the temple authorities were providing some money exchangers so that the people could exchange whatever money they came with so that they would have the right currency and the right amount. This was normal. It was perfectly fine practice for this. It was a great aid to the people that were coming to worship and to celebrate the Passover. And keep in mind, too, that this would not have been the first time that Jesus had come to Jerusalem. And it wouldn't have been the first time that, that Jesus was in the temple. And that makes it all the more interesting to see what he did. What did Jesus do? Look at verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. What did Jesus do? He exploded. He made a whip of cords. Now, we probably all have different ideas in mind when we think of a whip of cords, what that probably was. It is interesting and, and helpful to understand that the Greek word that's used here for cords means a rush or rushes, a, a whip of rushes. And what comes to my mind is like a strip of palm branches being wound together as a, as a type of, of whip. And Jesus did that, and then he went around the temple court, and he drove out all the merchants and all the animals and all the money changers and everyone from the court of the Gentiles. He was flipping tables over. He was taking jars of coin and pouring them out. He was telling the people that sold the pigeons to get them out of there. This was quite a scene. Tables are flying all over the place. Coins are going everywhere. Animals are in commotion. And people are being dispersed. This is not the calm, gentle, lowly Jesus that we saw at the beginning part of John chapter 2. This is a display of anger and power and commanding authority. The Bible tells us clearly and consistently that Jesus is like us in every way except without sin. Jesus never sins. Everything he does is perfect. And so what we are seeing here with Jesus in the temple is not a sinful anger, but a righteous, a holy anger. 
I think it's also interesting to realize or to reflect on why didn't anybody stop him? There were guards around, temple guards. There were lots of people there that needed the animals, that needed the money changers. Why didn't anybody stop him? This was one man with a small whip of rushes. And nobody tried to stop him. Well, it wasn't because of his whip. It's because this is Jesus, the Lion of Judah. This is the second person of the Trinity. And what was on display and what Jesus was doing was the holiness and the glory and the authority of the Lord God Almighty. The question is, what caused the power and the authority of Jesus to be on such display? In other words, why did Jesus respond this way? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the presence and the practice of the merchants and the money changers was not wrong. They weren't breaking any laws. There, were, there was a helpful service that was provided by the temple uh, authorities. The problem was not what they were doing. The problem is where they were doing it. They were inside the temple, John tells us. They were in the court of the Gentiles. If they'd been outside the temple as they usually were, there would not have been a problem and there would not have been an issue. But they were inside the temple. And for that reason, it was a problem. Now, I think we can understand that this was a problem for a few different reasons. The first is in verses 16 and 17. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus said that he had turned that they had they had turned his father's house into a house of trade. The, the Greek word there for trade is the is the word emporion. It's where we get our English word emporium. They had turned the house of the Lord, the courts of the Lord, they had turned it into a market. Think of a, a farmer's market or think of a flea market or even think about Walmart. And when the disciples heard what Jesus said. They remembered back to a verse in the Old Testament, Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. What Jesus was saying and what the disciples understood that Jesus was saying is that he was upset because the temple was a place for worship. And the temple authorities and the people had turned it into a marketplace. Jesus had a great zeal to see the glory of his father to be worshipped. And to be honored. And rather than having that same zeal for a pure and holy worship of the Lord, the people were focused on rituals. Rather than focusing on the fellowship and the communion and the relationship that they have with the Lord, being in the sanctuary of the Lord, they were focused on the ritual of the sacrificial system. And it made Jesus angry. Righteously angry. But I think there's another reason why Jesus was angry in addition to that. Think about all of the space that was being taken up in the court of the Gentiles. By the merchants, the animal stalls, the animals themselves, the money changers, their tables. There's probably not a lot of room for much else in that court of the Gentiles. 
And this was the court of the Gentiles. It was the only space in the entire temple that Gentiles were allowed to come into and worship the Lord God Almighty. And by filling it up with all of these animals and the tables and the merchants, they were keeping the Gentiles from being able to worship God. And Jesus was angry about it. Righteously angry. But I think there's perhaps a third reason why Jesus was angry, and maybe an even more important reason. And that leads us to our fourth and final point. What happened when Jesus was confronted? We see that in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? As we would expect, what Jesus did didn't just get ignored. It couldn't have been ignored. And so the Jews, the temple authorities confronted him about what he had done. And I want you to notice what they said. They didn't say anything about whether what Jesus had done was right or wrong. They wanted to know what authority he had for doing what he had done. They essentially said to him, show us a sign that shows that you have the authority to do what you just did. And they completely missed the point. The cleansing of the table was the sign. That was the sign of his authority. It was the only sign that they needed. Maybe the the Jews and the temple authorities thought that he was some sort of new prophet from God. Maybe they had a sense that when they watched him clear the temple, when they watched that nobody could stop him, they, they knew that this had to be somebody that was important. And so they wanted to know, what authority does he have to do it? Who was this guy? Jesus answered them in verse 19. He answers them, answers them with a bit of a riddle, at least from their perspective. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, at this point, they're either still standing in the courtyard of the temple or they're just outside the temple. But in any case, the temple is right there. This massive building, this literal building is right there. And he tells them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And nobody understood what he was saying. Not the Jews and apparently not even the disciples at that point. Verse 22, we read that the disciples understood after the resurrection what he had said. The Jews thought he was talking about the literal temple building. You can see that in verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They're looking at this massive structure that had taken 46 years to get to that point. It's still not completed. And he's going to raise it up in three days? They even used that charge against Jesus at his trial that he had threatened to destroy the temple. But John helps us understand by giving a little editorial comment in verse 21 that Jesus wasn't talking about that literal building. Jesus was talking about himself. He is the true and the ultimate temple. And I think this is the other reason why Jesus got so angry. In John 1, verse 14, we're told that Jesus came into the world. He became flesh and he dwelt with us. It's the word tabernacle. He tabernacled with us. The one who is the ultimate tabernacle, the one who is the ultimate temple, had arrived and was in their midst. 
Everything that the temple pointed forward to has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The entire sacrificial system, all of the animals being sacrificed in the temple were pointing to Christ. And here he was, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, standing in the temple, surrounded by the shadow of the, the oxen and the sheep and the pigeons, the one that they foreshadowed was right in the midst of the temple and no one got it. No one understood. No one welcomed Him in. No one worshipped Him. The Lamb of God, gentle and lowly, loving and gracious, desiring fellowship and communion and relationship with His people, and the people were focused on the ritual of sacrifices. One commentator that I was looking at this past week said that the whole Bible is a story about God being in, in the sanctuary with His people. It started in the sanctuary of the garden. God was in a sanctuary of sorts with Adam and Eve. And when they sinned, they got kicked out of the sanctuary. And God barred the sanctuary from them with flaming swords held by angelic creatures. And from Genesis 3 until the rest of the Old Testament, the story is God's people needing to be back in the sanctuary with God, but not being able to. God even gave them a tabernacle when they were wandering in the desert, and then a temple when they finally settled in Jerusalem. But even with those buildings uh, simulating the sanctuary of God and His people, there was division between God and His people. God resided in the Holy of Holies. That's where His presence was known to be. And no one could go into those areas. It was pointing to a future time when they would once again be able to come into the very sanctuary with the Lord. And now Jesus is there. The ultimate sanctuary, the ultimate temple had arrived. God Himself in the flesh was in their midst. And He says, come to me. Come to the temple, come into the sanctuary, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. And the Jews and even the disciples didn't understand. So what do we, what do, we do with all of this? Well, if you're here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, then that longing that you have deep down, that contentment that you're searching for, the, the rest that your soul is desiring, deep down it's because you need to be in the sanctuary with the Lord God Almighty. Nothing in this world can fill that need and desire. Not alcohol, not drugs, not vocational success, not a spouse, not family, not money. The only way to get into the sanctuary and to have your deepest needs met is to come to Jesus. To trust Him, to put your faith in Him, to come into relationship with Him, to recognize that you are a sinner and that you are separated from God spiritually and eternally and you need Jesus to pay for your sins and to remove the alienation between God and you. As our assurance of grace said earlier in the service from Paul in Romans 3, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. When we put our faith in Him, God's wrath for our sin is turned away. He pays for our sins with His death on the cross and turns away God's wrath forever. 
So if you haven't yet, come to Jesus. But I can say the same thing for those who are believers in Christ. What are we letting slip into our hearts and our minds that we, that we hold on to and that we love more than Jesus? What are we worshiping? What are we glorifying in our lives more than Jesus? The Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. And Christians, too, can have seasons of their life when we worship and we glory in idols rather than in the Lord. And we have to remind ourselves over and over again that those things will never completely and fully satisfy us. They are incapable of bringing the ultimate peace and rest that we, des- that we desire. We need to root them out, even if it's painful to do so. And you know, we can even make religion an idol. Like the Jews in the temple court, we can get so focused on the rituals and leave out the relationship. Christianity can become mechanical and sterile, where we just go through the motions and do religious things. But the Bible tells us that as Christians, we are in Christ. That means there is fellowship and communion and relationship with our Savior and Redeemer. We must not let our faith become just a religion of external rituals. And so we should be praying and praying regularly that the Lord would grow our faith into a true and growing communion with our Father in heaven. A second thing for those who are in Christ today, I think this passage says something to us about the importance of our worship being focused on the glory of God above all else. Jesus was righteously angry because people were not worshiping the Lord as he had commanded them. What we do when we gather for weekly corporate worship says something about how we think about God. I'm not just speaking here about the things that we do in the service. That's certainly true. We should always be doing only those things and focusing on those things that God has specifically told us to do in worship. But I'm also talking about our attitudes about worship. As you come into the sanctuary and you find your seat, what are you thinking about? What's your focus? Is it first and foremost the glory and the honor of God? Of glorifying Him and enjoying Him? There's a time and a place, a good time and a good place and a need for us to chit-chat and catch up with our friends and meet new people and talk about our week and hear about vacation plans and to share our burdens. But if those things are the focus of your heart and your minds as you come into the sanctuary and begin to worship, then that's a problem. There should be intentionality as we make our way to the church and as we come into the sanctuary and we begin to worship. And believe me, I know this is not easy. There are plenty of times when I come up not just to worship, but to lead worship and I'm distracted. And sometimes it's not even our fault. Things can pop up that distract us for a time. Something happens at the last minute and it makes us late to coming to worship. A child is needing attention during the service. We're dealing with particularly difficult things in our life in the moment. Or we get a text about something that's urgent. Of course, those things pop up at times and we need to give the attention and focus to them that is needed. 
But then we need to be intentional and do everything we can to re-engage with the glorifying and enjoying of our God. What we do in corporate worship, in our attitude while we're doing it, it's important. And we need to be intentional about it. Lastly, not only is Jesus the better and ultimate temple, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that everybody who's in Christ is a temple. Everybody who is in Christ is a temple. Our bodies, he says, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the context of Paul's letter, he's talking about fleeing away from sexual immorality. And that's true for us as well. But I think we can apply this idea to any immorality, any sin that is going on in our lives. It's incompatible with the fact that our bodies are are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And notice, Paul doesn't just say our bodies are the temple of a spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we've seen in John chapter 2 today, when there's unholiness going on in God's temple, he clears it out. And he'll do the same with us as temples as well. I wonder if, do you ever pray that prayer? God, come into the temple of my life and clean out everything that is unclean. Do you ever pray that prayer? That's a scary prayer to pray, but it is a good prayer to pray. I wonder what would happen if we committed ourselves as individuals, as we committed ourselves to pray that prayer every day for a month. What might the Lord do in our lives? We can also think about what the Puritans referred to as our besetting sins. It's an old Puritan term, besetting. It means persistent, ongoing, hard to get rid of sins. I used to think that there were just some people that had to struggle with a besetting sin. The more longer I'm a pastor, the longer that I'm an individual person, I'm convinced everybody has besetting sins. The question is, what are we doing actively to fight and to lean against our besetting sins? Are we just waiting for them to show up again? Are we just waiting for the temptation to come before we'll actually think about it and do something about it? We should be actively, we should be proactively putting things into our life and taking things out of our life to make it harder for besetting sins to grab our hearts and imaginations. So are you being intentional and proactive and putting barriers in place And removing things that make it easier to give in to your besetting sins. Paul says that your body is a temple. A temple of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for deciding to have this event in the life of Jesus recorded so that we can read it. We thank you for showing us the righteous and holy anger of Jesus. 
I pray, Father, that as we meditate on it, that you, you would move in us, that we would have an even greater love and understanding of our Savior. But also, Father, that you would move in us to make us want to be more and more like our Savior. That we would be righteously angry at the uncleanness in our own lives, in our own bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. And don't just motivate us, Father, to see that for what it is and to be angry about it, but give us the strength we need to root it out. And we pray you would do it, that we might be more and more conformed to our Savior and more and more the people of your delight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.